I remember Pimp was like, let's go to Harlem. And I was like, okay, let's go to Harlem. And so we jumped in a cab in Midtown and we told him, take us to Harlem. And I'll never forget the driver looked back and he looked at us and he was like, you're not from Harlem. <laughs> I yeah. was like, no, we from Texas. He's like, and you want to go to Harlem? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> this dude dropped us off on the corner of 145th in Amsterdam and said, welcome to Harlem. Damn. Wow. He didn't even take you to 25th. Damn. No, no, no. <laughs> exactly. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. Hey, this is your girl Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. Bun B is a foundational figure in Southern hip hop. But on top of all the rap classics that UGK gave to the game, Bun B has also become a historian for hip hop. On this episode of The Bridge, he delved into some of the conflicting emotions around that iconic Jay-Z collab, Big Pimpin', as well as giving us keys to protecting your value in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of activewear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know? Like nothing nuts. Just like a really nice pullover comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. The rise of Southern hip hop was a long time coming. For many New York rap fans back in the day, if it wasn't from New York, it was too foreign. But in time, the South would not only rise, it would be a dominant force in hip hop. For a lot of people, UGK was one of the groups who changed our mind about the South. Hailing out of Texas, the duo of Bun B and Pimp C, may he rest in peace, made us see that the street life was the same all over and that the South indeed has something to say. Can you kind of paint the scene of what Houston was like as a rap scene? At that time, like, what was 92 like? <laughs> 92 was a very good year for rap locally. We were still a very young scene, you know. 
Rap a lot records and Jay Prince obviously were the first people to like open the doors of actually releasing rap music for sale. You know, at that time in '92, this is right when the Ghetto Boys are releasing "Mind Playing Tricks on Me." So I remember in the weeks before we dropped our first project, that song was starting to spread outside of the city, and it was just as big in Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia as it was in Houston. So watching this local group, not only having this success in the city, but having the success go nationwide, it was exciting to see. And it made you feel like, man, if we can get one like GB just had, we could fuck around and go. So we had a lot of momentum happening in the city at that time. It was an exciting time. We were doing a lot of consignment down here in the early days. Mm. For people that don't know, we would literally say we'd press up a couple hundred copies of of a project. And then we go to a record store with a box of 25. It'd be like, look, just take this, see if you can sell it. You know what I'm saying? If you sell it, call me, I'll come pick up the bread and bring you some more. If you can't sell it, I'll come back and take them back from you. And so you kind of had to go out and create your own buzz. This was always a self-sustained scene hmm. locally, you know, because we knew we didn't have any proximity to any real outlets and resources that anybody else had. So if you was going to make it, in the city, you had to let the city know what you were doing. But there was a lot of clubs like the Rhinestone Wrangler back in the day. They were doing a lot of freestyle battles. So, you know, Houston had a scene. It was right. just about that scene making traction nationally. And watching the Ghetto Boys, Mind Playing Tricks on Me, become a number one record, seeing them on the cover of Source Magazine, performing on TV Raps, we felt like it was our time. And so we took that confidence and that inspiration and we ran with it. Yo, what was that Rhino? What's that spot called? Rhinestone Wrangler. What, Rhinestone what was Wrangler. that like? What was that like? I don't think I've ever been there. And when? what year did it close? Like, Was it still popping in 92? Uh, yeah, no, it was definitely popping in 92. I might have been there. Up until the mid-90s. Yeah, you might, you might have slid through one time. But that would have been our version of the tunnel for New York people. Wow. Got that it. Perspective. That would have been our version of the tunnel. That was one of the first clubs that were consistently bringing in artists from out of town. Right. To perform. Right. And so EPMD, for example, were very big in Houston in those early days of the hmm. Rhinestone Wrangler. So they would like book an artist on Friday, right? And I seen them do it a couple of times. I seen it once with EPMD and I saw it again with Shabba Ranks. That's how crazy Houston is. They book an artist on a Friday. The artist comes to the club and does the show. And at the end of the night, like, yo, y'all want to see him again tomorrow? People are like, yeah. They bring him back the next <laughs> night. Club's even crazier. <laughs> Wow. It goes off again. Y'all want to see him again tomorrow night? Yeah. Bring him back the next night. As long as the artists weren't booked throughout the weekend, man. Like, the Shabba one was crazy because it was the first time I actually saw, like, an actual dance hall artist in the city. But the way dance hall music makes the women dance, yeah. everybody wanted him to stay all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and I was one of the few people, like, I wasn't even old enough the first time I went into Rhinestone Wrangler, but I always looked older. You know what I'm saying? So I've been having a beer since like the tenth grade. So I used to be like the guy that would buy liquor for people, all of that shit. So when I first went into Rhinestone, I was 17 years old. And so it just opened my eyes up to this whole new world. Like I had never been in a nightclub. At that point, I had been at church dances and house parties and, you know, maybe the Sadie Hawkins or something at school, but not in no nightclub watching people drink Long Island iced teas. I was like, wow, this is amazing. These are real grown folks. It was so much. And I remember just seeing the photo booth in the club. And I was like, yo, I want 
I got to make some money and get my dudes and some girls and go take us some pictures right. with some bottles in front of the photo booth. I need that in my life. Right. And, you know, just having a window to all of this stuff so early, it just really inspired me to jump out into something that at the time, there was no guarantee of you even being famous, much less making money. You didn't know if your music would make it outside of the city. But we had a lot of faith. And I mean, Pimp had a real dream of making it. He didn't have a plan B. Like it was music or nothing. But he had this level of determination and confidence. And I was like, I'm riding with him. And it was a bunch of us at first, but eventually, one by one, everybody fell off. And it, wow. at the end of the day, it ended up just, just ended up being me and Pimp. And we was down with each other. We said we was going to give it a try and put it out. And we never looked back. The rest is history. Was it like you were in a vacuum? How did it also relate to the rest of the rap world? Because what was happening in 92? Like, who was out at that point? I was coming out. 92? Yep. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot. Of, I, think first... it was, I, think, I think UGK, Nas, I think the first Wu-Tang album mm. came out in 92. I think Smith & Wesson, or Black Moon. Wu, Wu was Moon. 93. Wu was Smith, 93? Uh, uh, Black Moon, you're right. Black Moon. Black Moon that was 92. Yeah. Yeah. But was it the single? Was it the Wu Tang right. single in '92? The, the, the Wu Tang single "Protect Your Neck" was probably 1992. Yeah, '92 yeah, yeah. was a really big year. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that argue that '92 might be one of the strongest years in hip hop. Regions were feeling comfortable enough to put their music out there and see what the world wanted to say to it. A lot of those artists that dropped at that time are considered legends. You know, no matter what region mm -hmm. they were from, there was a lot of new, exciting, different music, and music was starting to look like people on the street. You know. <laughs> the more hip-hop we got, the more hip-hop started to look like you. And I think that was the beauty of it. Because in the early years, there was only a select few people that were releasing music. There was a lot of consideration for the imagery of these artists. So you would see somebody like Slick Rick. Well, nobody walking around where <laughs> I was at <laughs> like that, you uh -huh. know, initially. But then, you know, 91, you start seeing Mr. Scarface in his suit. Yep. With his hat on, with some jewelry, moving around the city. Willie D, with some money and some jewelry. Jay Prince and them Benzes, driving around the city. So the streets started to look a lot like rap. And so I was like, man, I won't, I won't end on this. We always thought like, oh, well, it's a lot easier to figure out and make these connections when you're in New York or in L.A. Right. Right? So how do you do it? Or actually, is it a benefit to be out of the mix, in the middle? Well, for us, it forced us to be businessmen, right? We didn't have the traditional outlets for getting our music to the consumer, right? We didn't have the magazine proximity. We didn't have the large radio conglomerate proximity. We didn't have the television proximity, right? So for us, if we wanted to make sure people got our music, we had to go talk to the wholesalers. We had to go talk to the one-stops and these mom-and-pop stores and present our music personally to people, you know? So once we started building those relationships, we realized, well, that's the only reason you need a record company is to get your music to wholesalers and distributors and all of that. Right. Well, if I'm already making those relationships, I don't really need y'all. Maybe your press department, maybe certain departments in your building I can use, but I don't need your whole system. We're operating outside of the system to a certain extent. Right. Now, I'm making good bread. I could probably make better bread if I had your product development department, if I had your marketing department, if I had your college radio department to spread the music out a little bit. But don't get it twisted. We're seeing paper. And so because of that, we were able to negotiate for substantially larger amounts of money when we finally did go to the labels 
The only reason that we knew how to negotiate on that level is because we were forced to operate outside of the system for so long. Always respected that. When you're talking about negotiating the, the joint venture, what year is this and how many albums did UGK already have before you guys went to, what was it, Jive? Yeah, yeah. So our first deal, we had only had one project out. We dropped an independent album in the second week of February in 1992. And the reason it got so much traction through the industry was because we dropped the same day as Crisscross. They were the number one album selling out of every distribution company in the country, except in Houston. So these record companies wanted to know what is this local rap album in Houston that's out selling crisscross locally? Like, what are they doing? Because Jump is literally the biggest record in the world at the time, mm -hmm. you know? And these are kids. So kids always tend to sell more music, do more numbers, and have more visibility in the market space, right? So how is it that this young independent group from a label that's never released a project before getting more traction than the hottest song in the world? That automatically raised eyebrows. Wow. What was the single? What was the EP, actually? It was called The Southern Way. The single was called Tell Me Something Good. And the reason it was taken off in the city, they used to have a radio contest here called Houston Home Jams. And so for two weeks, every night they would play a new record from somebody in the city. They would take a tally on who called in and liked it and who didn't. And whoever had the most positive votes after two weeks would win. So when we entered, we came in on the last day of the contest and we got more calls to play our record than every artist on all other nine days put together. The response was, oh, was really, really crazy. But the problem was the prize was that you got your single pressed up. That was the prize. You got studio time at the studio called RPM, and you would go in, record this song professionally, and they would press your single up and put it out. We were already signed, so we ended up getting disqualified from the contest oh. after we won. But people kept calling the station for the record. And so it was the first time that the station here added a record into rotation that wasn't available for sale because people were demanding that they played the record. And that ultimately added to the buzz that we had on the street. So once the record dropped, all of these things were happening at one time. Boom, that's why we impacted so heavily locally. Wow. Were you competing against Crisscross? Like when you were going to the mom and pops and the one stops? No, no, it wasn't so much that it was a choice. It was the fact that the song was connecting locally to the point where if I buy 200 units of Crisscross, I'm pretty sure I could sell 150, 160 out the gate. If I put 200 units of this new group UGK that's buzzing in the city, I could probably sell all of those. So just for me right now at this moment and on this week, I need more of this in my store than this because I'm in the hood. These are grown men with cars out here in the street living a certain lifestyle. So yeah, Crisscross is a big record on the radio and on MTV and all of that. But for these mom and pop stores that facilitate the streets, that's not what's connecting with the culture at that moment. We're the ones that are making the connection with the culture. And they're trying to make money. And they make money by being connected to the culture. And so they needed my music in that store at that moment. Mm. Now, obviously, Crisscross won the war. I won that one little battle. <laughs> they obviously won the war on that side. But that gave us a lot of confidence. And it gave us bragging rights, too. Working at The Source, we always knew about UGK. You, mm. you had hardcore, hardcore fans all over. Yeah. But for a lot of New Yorkers that were always very stuck on local regional rap, 
barely acknowledged West Coast. Took many years before they acknowledged Chicago Midwest. After Big Pimpin' came out, that song kind of changed the game for them. But it was funny to me because I'm like, oh, you don't already know about UGK? I, I think real hip-hop guys knew yeah. UGK. I never looked at it as in New York, the city didn't embrace us. Hmm. I understood very early that the majority of the record labels are housed in New York. The majority of the employees in these buildings are from New York. Now, if I'm from Brooklyn and there's these three demos come in into my office, one is from Texas, one is from California, and one is from Brooklyn. Of course, one, I'm going to understand the Brooklyn songs better. I'm going to understand the cultural references, the neighborhoods, the slang, the way the guys dress, all of that. I'm going to have a point of entry for that. Right. But also, too, it's going to be very easy for me to explain this music and push this music in the office because almost everybody in the office will also have points of entry. Three, I don't have to do as much research. I don't really have to do a hard job of not just selling this in the building, but selling it in the city, right? right. So I can take this artist from Brooklyn sign him to my label in New York. I can get him on Hot 97 very easily. The system is designed for this artist to slide through. So it was only after we made this record with Jay-Z, right, produced by Timbaland, video directed by Hype Williams, connects all over the world, right? At the same time, we got the biggest hood record as well because we got Sippin' on Scissor mm -hmm. with 3-6 Mafia. This is all happening in the same summer. So we got the biggest pop record, and the biggest hood record. Huge. But then the record company is like, yo, let's buy a verse from Jay. Let's buy a beat from Timbaland. Let's get hyped to do the video. And let's try to, you know, let's do part two. And I'm like, well, for one, you can't capture lightning in a bottle like that. That's just not how shit work. You know what I'm saying? And second, this is the only way you'll, if I don't do a song with Jay-Z, can I still get a Hype Williams video? Wow. Like if Tim don't make the beat, like what wow. are we doing? They never would say no. They would just be like, why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to do another record like that? Because this is not what we do. That's Jay's record. That's not our record. Hmm. We're featured artists on that record. That's not the kind of music we necessarily make, right? We can make anything because we're talented enough to do that. But that's not what we represent personally. And this was always something that Pimp was scared about. That's why Pimp is only on the record for so many bars. Because Pimp was very concerned that... There would be a lot of people who had never heard us before and would think that this record is more of our style of music than Jay. Because this music was very original for its time. Like, this was nothing like Jay had ever done, nothing like we had never done. Hell, Tim had never made a beat like that before. Right. Right. right? So you don't really know where this is coming from. You don't know if this was a UGK record and then Hove got it. And you don't know where the musical cues came from. So he was concerned that we would be misinterpreted by this, that people would have a different understanding of who we were and what we represented. And so that's why for a long time, he didn't even want to do the record. Wow. But but we we ended up working it out. I kind of had to do like reverse psychology on it, you know? Like, well, fuck it. If you ain't going to do it, I ain't going to do it. Fuck it. But he knew I wanted to, he knew I wanted to do it because I wanted to test my metal with Hove, even though that wasn't necessarily the song to do that, right? But still, I'm like, you, you know, went, this allows you me crazy. to be on the track. Y'all both went yeah, crazy. Yeah, but... Y'all yeah. all went crazy on that. Pimp kept it pimp. And you just went, it was you went somewhere. It was like, yes. I knew everybody was finna hit his Nas. I yeah. knew for the first time, 
everybody was going to hear me rap. Right. Right. And for some people, this may be the first time they ever heard me rap before. So I wasn't, I wasn't taking no prisoners. I, I came to do it. And it, it wouldn't have mattered whatever record he had presented because we didn't know what the record was going to be. Like when I went to New York to do the song, I didn't know what the beat was until we went to the studio. Right. I right. just know I'm finna rap with Jay-Z. So I'm ready for my A game. I'm ready. Let's go. And then there's like a party record. And I'm like, mm. kind of like Michael Black said, I can't get jiggy to this shit. But <laughs> I found, but I was like, okay, you know what? I can still spit, right? Like I wanted to go like one of those situations where you like measure my verse versus his verse. Like that's what I was more of anticipating. But I was like, you know what? I can still get busy with this. And it's still one of my most, you know, recognized verses. Obviously, one of the biggest songs of my career. Hov is still one of my good friends. I talk to him very regularly. And it's something that, you know, I'm glad we ended up doing. I think UGK would still have had a very good career because Sipping on Scissor was still going to drop, so we were still going to have a big record that year. But there's no denying that this song put us in a totally different league. I can go in any country on the planet and go in the club, and at some point, they play that record. Like, up to this day, it doesn't matter. I was just no, in the record is huge. <laughs> it's forever. That's a hit record forever. Most people won't ever get a record close to that in rap music. Me and Everlast talked about that from House of Pain. He was like, he's like, you know, he was talking about, like, having one of those records. He was like, and you you got one, B. Oh, yeah. And I never thought about that. He was like, yo, he was like, your song's going You got a couple. Forever. You got you got I mean, a couple. Sipping on some scissor <laughs> is that as yeah, well. No. I'm I'm a blessed man, bro. I can't even front. I'm a very blessed man. Sipping on some scissor. Zip zipping on some zip zipping on some scissor. Zip zipping on some zip. Tell me what you know about Frank Nito A young Guido Paul and Vito We play a tune that's sweeter than Pedito With my three six Pulling up in my southern credo Quick fast, we'll put it on your This episode is brought to you by Empower You got money questions like Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kids' education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers with Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. 
I remember meeting Pimp and ATL around 90-something. Yeah? <laughs> In the studio. At the studio. Yep. He was talking about moving some work <laughs> down the highway <laughs> and which highways. And we got into a whole hustler conversation. It became like, okay, we could make some moves. And I'm like, whoa, I had to snap out of it. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. But it was real at the same time because we talking about weed. Weed wasn't everywhere like it is today. So I'm in Atlanta and I'm thinking about the next place I'm about to be. And the concerns is I might run out of weed by the time I get there. And he was just telling me about how to keep weed wherever you go. Let's just say it like that. Wow. Solid dude, man. May he rest in peace. Yeah. And let me tell you, very honestly, we talked about that day all the time because wow, I don't know if you even remember this. You pulled him to the side at some point and was like, yo, check this out. I just wrote this. Check this out. Tell me what you think. And the idea that Nas wanted to run his verse by him was unfathomable. He's like, this nigga don't need nobody to tell him his rhymes is good. This nigga's cold. Like, it was just like the man wanted my opinion on his rhyme, bro. For him, that was a big deal because the majority of us who aspire to be good writers, not just make songs and release music, but aspire to to be good writers, if not great writers, always have to take your work into consideration, regardless of the kind of music they make, right? If they want to be considered one of the greats, they have to take your legacy into consideration. Appreciate that. And just the fact that that you as a writer, having written so many great things up to that point, you already considered a great at that point. You know, Pimp's been gone for 17 years. So this is a conversation y'all are having over 20 years ago. and You are already solidified. Still striving for greatness today. But I'm saying all of that to say that he was like, yo, if that man is still humble enough to take other people's opinions into consideration, don't none of us need to be out of here just assuming we the shit. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, because that was a big night for us. He met you that night. I met Latifah for the first time that night. That was a big night for us, just in terms of the culture, because we're now in that social circle, right? But we're not flies on the wall. Like, we're active members in the room. Mm -hmm. We considered equals with our contemporaries. Right. And in terms of Latifah, that's the OG. Right. So just to be acknowledged by her in the space as a good writer, that was a lot for me. And the same for Pimp from you. That was a big night for us. We talked about that night several times. Wow. I never forgot it. Neither did he, brother. UGK is respected worldwide. New York to LA to everywhere. No fluff, no commercial, no extras. Yeah. It is what it is. And both of you guys are respected for your authenticity. You know what I mean? How you move. Yeah. That was a big thing for us because of the fact that we didn't have the magazines. We didn't have the big videos. and We weren't on a lot of the TV shows the first time people were going to see us were in person. Mm. So for us, the way we moved, the way we showed up, how this shit was presented was everything, right? It would be your first time coming in visual contact with the group. And so for him, the first thing was the show needed to sound like the album. Mm. So, and you know, we come up in the era where, you know, do motherfuckers jack up sound men anymore? Do that stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Nah. But it's that was the thing. Fi- it's I think, sweet I now. I feel like they figured it out now, right? It's I figured they figured it out. It's sweet right now for them, man. We came up in tough clubs. 
where you had to almost fight your way out sometime. Even if you rocked the yes. house, we hung out with the promoters. You know, we had the janky promoters, like the movie. And a couple of dudes think they was going to take some money back. <laughs> we, we went through all of that. We went through all of that. So, Real. so these guys today, thank God, they don't have to see that side of it. They starred in the House of Blues. Now, this yeah. is crazy to me. That was like the ultimate dream to get to the House of Blues. I remember when they disrespected you. That shit was foul. Like, we, we Wait, never, I've only played. Yeah, bring they, that back. They, what happened? Somebody said they were fucking with you. They didn't want to let all your people in, so you didn't want to go in the House of Blues one day. Wow. Wow. In LA. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds I, about I'd heard right. something like that. UGK played the House of Blues one time, and we were very reluctant because we had heard the story. It was like, yo, Nas went to House of Blues. Because you got to remember, for years, Dan Aykroyd did not want rap in the House of Blues. Mm. Let's just keep it funky. Right. They did everything they could to keep hip-hop out of those locations. But the culture was too strong to deny, and there was too much money being left on the table. Right. So they started letting hip-hop artists in, but they would be real funky at the door. You ain't lying. That <laughs> probably just real- changed. They would be real funky at the door at House of Blues, like eight, ten people tops. After that, it's a wrap, you know. And we had heard a story that House of Blues L.A. did you dirty. And it was like, we ain't fucking with it. To this day, I've only done House of Blues L.A. one time. Wow. I've done many of the other locations, but only that location one time because I heard that they had a reputation for being disrespectful to artists. Well, that L.A. story, because it happened to me like more than once at the L.A. House of Blues, now that you bring that up, I forgot that happened to me a couple of times. I went in the other times, but it was definitely one time I didn't like, they was disrespectful. Like, Wait, what? so you were booked to do the show? Yeah. And you were trying to bring 300 people in from Queensbridge? Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> and Jungle had another extra nah, 50 goons? Nah, nah, I'm <laughs> telling you. But it was just like he said, they were just really careful about letting too many of us in there. And at some point, it's disrespectful, you know? And the L.A. House of Blues was like, the mecca mm-hmm. of the House of Blueses. And they didn't take no shit. They didn't care. That was the one you wanted to do. And yeah. that was the one. And they knew it too, right? Yeah. There was a very high level of prestige at the LA House of Blues because that's literally the one that built everything else. Dan Aykroyd's in Hollywood at the time. So that's the first door. Right. So that's really for them the flagship. Right. Right. LA is the flagship. All this other shit is just franchise. Right. But that's the one. And so... Nah, and they were like pointing at the sign, like blues. It says blues. Hey. Not rap. <laughs> and now we point well, at the sign. You can look at the marquee. It says Nas. It's right. <laughs> Fun. What was your first visit to New York like? First visit to remember? New York for me was, yes, absolutely. Who doesn't? We went to New York to get signed. That was our time to get signed. I remember Pimp was like, Let's go to Harlem. And I was like, okay, let's go to Harlem. And so we jumped in a cab in Midtown, and we told him, take us to Harlem. And I'll never forget the driver looked back, and he looked at us. And he was like, you're not from Harlem. <laughs> I was like, no, we from Texas. He was like, and you want to go to Harlem? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> this dude dropped us off on the corner of 145th in Amsterdam and said, welcome to Harlem. Damn. Wow, he didn't even take you to 2-5th. Damn. No, 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 exactly. That's how real shit was, though. We went to the barbershop. We went across the street to the Jamaican food spot. We yeah. went around the corner to the mom-and-pop record store, got trees. Harlem took top-notch care of us. They ain't That's try to love. beat for us. 
They ain't juke for us. They ain't set niggas up. Because they could have easily got us. Did they know? know who you but were? They took... No, absolutely not. Those were great not times. At all. Those were great times during that time. It, it was like, it was still new to a lot of people. The rap game and the street game wasn't so intertwined hmm. everywhere you went. It was like, oh, these brothers making it out. I like them. That's it. Once they like you, that's it. They was like, yo, make sure you eat across the street. Y'all need some smoke. You'll go around to the record store, say this. You know what I'm saying? They'll hook you up. We got the chocolate tie. It's our first time smoking chocolate tie. I heard oh, so many rap songs days. in New York. Oh. We have so many songs in New York talking about chocolate tie, and we could never get it in Texas. And we just went back to the hotel, and we was just smoking. Like, yo, we just went to Harlem and got chocolate tie and Jamaican food. That's and I think that might have actually been my first time eating Jamaican food, too. Wow. wow. You so, that story is so visual. <laughs> yeah. I could just see y'all. I could just see y'all going to all of It was crazy back then, but it was, the vibe was real. A rapper wasn't a target in right. 1992. Right. Because hmm. rappers right. really wasn't the dudes with bread. Right. Street dudes still in 92 had way more money Facts. than a rapper. So we wasn't really the targets back then. You know, a rapper wasn't a threat to nobody in 92. Not to getting bread, not to your woman. You know, not to your status. A rapper wasn't a threat in 1992 to none of that in the hood. Mm. But times has changed. Hip-hop has made more black millionaires, I think, than anywhere else because we don't just make money in music. Russell Simmons, as much money as he made from Def Jam Records, how much do you think he made with Rush Communications and doing Coca-Cola commercials and getting those accounts? Look at Puff. With all, Puff made a gang of money selling music. You can get rich making music, but you can only get wealthy doing business. Right. Right. That's the transition, especially when it comes to finance. Like what you and Jay are doing, talking about these companies and, and venture capitalist funds and, and just moving differently and understanding how you are supposed to be able to use your connection to the culture to make money for you instead of making money for other people. Right? We get comfortable we're taking deposits and these back ends and start to think that that's the only way we're supposed to do business with people is by taking money from them. Right. No, take equity. Shaq changed the game. Right. Like if you watch Shaq, Shaq changed the game. Shaq like, I don't need bread. I need ownership. I need equity. Right. We have leverage because we are the culture. They have no culture. Not only do they not have a connection to the culture, they are not a part of any culture. We are the culture, the living breathing, human visualization and rendition of culture. That's us. There isn't a product on this planet that does not get sold without hip-hop. I don't right. care if it's a movie, a t-shirt, a soda, goddamn detergent, cereal, <laughs> somebody's breakdancing, somebody's beatboxing. It's some kind of, it takes two to make a thing go. <laughs> Nelly with the fucking Cheerio B, all of this shit. They can't sell nothing. And it's crazy because when people like Hammer first started doing it, we had the nerve to call them sellouts because we thought that this was something that was giving the culture away. Hammer was making the motherfuckers pay for the culture. Yeah. Talk your you want to be around us? You got to break bread. Russ was out here making them pay for the culture. Puff making them pay for the culture. Hove making them pay. Nas making them pay for the culture. We understand our value and our worth now. Talk your shit. I'd never considered a solo career until Pimp got locked up. Right. And I realized that was going to be the only way to kind of keep shit going was for me to do it solo. 
And so when I went to Jive, I told them, I said, look, I want to do a solo album. And they were like, eh, nah, nah, we good. Oh. It was like, you know, Pip made the music. He's the personality. You're just the sidekick. You know, we're good on that. I was like, okay, well, can I go do it somewhere else? And they were like, yeah, we don't care. So I went to Jay Prince and he was like, I'll do it. And then they started to get concerned because they was like, well, I don't know, because Jay Prince may understand this better and may know how to, right. how to make this work, you know? But they eventually let him do it. We took it over to Asylum. My first album on Asylum is still to this day the number one selling album on Asylum Records. Wow. And, you know, we did 750 in the first, like in the first six months of release. And wow. so when Pimp came back home, and um, we went back in front of Jive. The first thing they did was apologize. Like, they was like, we could have sold millions of albums if we, because you did that independently. We could have put that in the system and made a lot of money. I said, well, it was never about this. It was always about believing in me. And y'all just didn't show no belief. Jay Prince always believed in me and Pimp. Jay Prince came to us. We were 18 years old trying to sign us because he knew there was something there. But we were already signed. Hmm. Right. But he never hated on us. He still helped put us in positions to grow as men and as businesses. So I'm wow. eternally grateful to Jay Prince for that. And so when other people didn't believe in me, Jay Prince was like, Bumby solo album, let's do it. Whatever you need, let's do it. He gave me the resources. I reached out to everybody in the community. Everybody gave me everything on the arm because they knew I was trying to keep it alive. We did the UGK for Life movement out of that, the Free Pimp C movement out of that. And by showing that I was still connected to my brother and still representing for my brother, it created a system that made him even more important when he came out because yeah. there was this whole anticipation of seeing us reconnect. Because I'm building the anticipation to seeing him being free and UGK finally coming back together. He came back. We made that album. It literally was our first number one on the Billboard 200. Wow. Salute. And he passed away. Rest in peace to the king. You kept it solid with your brother. That's just honorable. You kept it solid. That's all I knew. That's all I knew. Now, so I didn't know. I knew that better than I knew the music. I'd never been a solo artist. I'd never been responsible for a whole song, much less a whole album. I didn't know none of that shit. I just knew that I wanted to do something so that my man's name wouldn't die behind the wall. I wanted him to have something to come home to. And we didn't even have streaming and all these different revenue streams to keep the music out. Yeah. Like, and we didn't have all our, all our publishing at the time. So it wasn't no, there was no mailbox money. <clears throat> so we had, I had to get out there and grind it. If I didn't grind it out, the shit would have died. And I just had to make the effort. But I was blessed that hip-hop lifted me up and lifting him up. I did not do it by myself. Producers gave me beats. Artists gave me verses. Directors gave me videos. Publications gave me stories. Shows gave me airtime. Everybody made this happen. The culture lifted it up. That's why I know we don't need nobody. All we need is us. It's nothing realer than that. Labels. Yes. It's, it's deep. It's a dark side to the whole thing. And it's perpetuated by family. This is a family business. A lot of people don't realize music industry is a family business. A lot of the people that run the music industry today are the children or bloodline of people that ran it before. Mm. I was signed to Jive Records, which was run by Barry Weiss, who learned the music industry from his uncle, High Weiss. Right, you know? Right. So that's a family business. You look at the Granger family. Look at Lucian, you know, over there with Universal, and now his son has subsidiary labels now. But he's getting the force and momentum of the powerhouse, right? Yeah. Even though it's a subsidiary because it's my son's label. 
So this is a family business. People have to pay attention to that. And so if it's a family business on their side, why isn't it a family business on our side? So, I tell people all the time, hip-hop and the music industry is the only industry that you have to teach your children about. You have to teach your children about the music industry. If your father's a football player, you don't have to play football or know nothing about football to manage his estate. If so, your father's a baseball player, athlete, you don't have to know nothing about those prospective industries to manage your family's estate. But if your father or your mother was a musician who had publishing and royalties, right, then it's imperative that you know your family business. I take my wife to every meeting. I try to put my wife on every phone call because should I die, my wife needs to know how this business works. Right. She needs to understand publishing, royalty. She needs to understand the value of the music library that I'm leaving her. Right. To manage the so assets. Some, She's going to manage Absolutely. Assets. She needs to know how to manage them. Right. You get, if I die in this 50 songs, don't put out two albums with 20 songs. You know, you got to manage this music. <laughs> right. right. Right? Wow. And that kind of stuff is important. That's why I never understood why artists hide shit from their family. Because if you die and you don't know when you're going to die, right. that's why you see all of these estates in turmoil. They yeah. still haven't figured out what to do with James Brown money yet. Because there's so many people fighting over it. Those lines are already drawn in the sand on my side. Mm. So there will be no ambiguity when I die. Talk. You really need to be also teaching at the business school. Not just at the theology department. <laughs> Again, hip-hop sells everything on this planet. If you want to be a good salesperson, if you want to be a good businessman, at some point, if you don't have a connection to the culture, you're going to have to pay for someone that does. Honored, man, to talk to you and to see where you're at with it. Teaching. I mean, we need more guys like you. I look at what you're doing and I see myself to get into that position myself. So keep doing what you're doing. I'd love to talk to you more about what you're doing because uh, these are conversations that need to be had more. I could have them where I'm at. you doing them where you're at. We're helping people get to another place. I want to get to to do what you're doing if I can. I told the kid, I was like, I don't even know why they asked me to do this so early in the game. I said, because there's so many people like... The pool of resources y'all could draw from is ridiculous. This is what matters, the fact though. This that is top of the list for me us. In. I'm really thankful. This is who we I'm, are. I'm you, you and us, we alike. So this, this is what we are, man. So they alike. this right? is what it is. Yes, sir. We appreciate you, man. Thank y'all so much for having me. And thank y'all for this podcast, man. For real, man. I think, I think y'all can be able to put a lot of things into context with people. I've always said hip-hop history has to be told from the horse's mouth. Because there's always been this middleman to the culture. The record company was always the middleman to the music. The magazines were always the middleman to the voice. Mm -hmm. Like now, we can have the culture talking to the culture about the culture. It's beautiful to see it come full circle. On the next episode of The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop, we talked to Dougie Fresh. He said, yo, you know what? You should do that outside at the jam and call it the human beatbox. I said, I'm not doing that. She's trying to make me look like a clown. He said, yo, I'm telling you, you should do that. That's crazy. So I went outside at the jam, in the projects, at the park, and he said, do it now, do it now. 
cut the music down. Wow. I said, yo, I'm going to do this thing called the beatbox. Tell me how y'all like this. And everybody ran up to the fucking... Ah! Started going crazy. And that is how the beatbox started. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. From Spotify. The executive producers are Gina Delvec and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. From Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana, and associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening.